jazz saxophonist and recording artist Dan St. Marseille plays in the tradition of all the tenor legends. Employing a warm tone and melodic approach, he has won praise from jazz critics worldwide. Dan's recordings are heard internationally on jazz radio and have been the subject of articles in such publications as Downbeat, Jazz Times, The Los Angeles Times, Japan's Jazz Critic Magazine, among many others. Three of St. Marseille's CDs received four-star ratings in the third edition of the All Music Guide to Jazz, the expert's guide to the best jazz recordings. In addition to local and national tours, Dan has performed in Europe, Canada, and many jazz clubs and festivals, including a headline performance at the prestigious Coleman Hawkins Festival in Topeka, Kansas. Please join Yamaha Winds product manager Jeff Hawley as he speaks with Dan about his musical experiences, his many albums, and future projects. I'm here with Dan St. Marseille, world-renowned saxophonist and clarinetist uh, here at the uh, Buena Park uh, headquarters of Yamaha. Glad to have you here, Dan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we just had a really nice uh, lunch down the road and wanted to get in a, a quick quick interview here and add you to our, to our podcast stream. Um, obviously a lot going on with you and we've been chatting about your your latest album that you just released making waves uh, for clarinet jazz clarinet recording yes uh, and I've known you for years and known you as a as a primarily as a sax player how did this album come about how did what made you think to do something with clarinet well you know I've always been a clarinet player I started clarinet when I was nine years old and uh, I always thought of myself as a clarinet player, but when I was in college, my roommate, uh, he said, uh, let's put a jazz band together. And so I, I whipped out the clarinet, and it just didn't quite fit with weather report and the stuff that yeah. was happening at the time. <laughs> so he says, well, why don't you play the saxophone? And I said, well, okay, you know, it's got a reed and a mouthpiece. And I uh, found an alto saxophone and fell in love with it. It, uh, it just allowed me to, uh, a part of me that I hadn't done before to come up, because up until then I was a classically trained clarinet player. I mean, I fooled around with swing and copped a few Benny Goodman solos and stuff like that. But, the, you know, so I kind of got hooked on the saxophone, and people would sort of notice me because I was playing saxophone mm -hmm. in a jazz group. And so my career kind of started off that way. I was a student of Gary Foster, uh, the brilliant... Uh, woodwind artist and and he instilled a lot of good values in me so I kind of went on that road and I had always played clarinet but most people don't realize that I played the instrument and about a year and a half ago I had a really awful car accident and I was unconscious and when I came to you know I, I went through all the pain and physical pain and agony and mental agony and and when I kind of had my little uh Epiphany, if you want to call it, I, you know, I realized that nobody knew I played clarinet, and I thought, man, I got to make a clarinet album. I mean, that's really the instrument I started on, and so I started practicing it a lot, and then I, I just got the regular guys that I played with. I said, let's go in the studio, make a CD, and so I had been really woodshedding on it. And we made the CD, and uh, you know, it got released last year, and people are taking notice of it. You know, we didn't know you played clarinet. You'd mentioned uh, 
uh, Benny Goodman as one of your influences. And is there similarities between how you guys are playing at all, or how does that work? Well, growing up, my father was a, an opera singer. And when I was about 10, I had already decided I wanted to be a musician. And so <clears throat> I went to my dad one day, I said, hey dad, uh, you know, who's a good clarinet player? And because he was coming from the opera field and and that end, he, you know, he thought of popular music. He said, well, Benny Goodman. And, you know, it's really a good choice because Benny was a classically trained mm -hmm. clarinetist. He studied with Gustav Longinus, who was also my clarinet teacher's teacher back in New York. And so he had a foundation and he was a schooled clarinet player and he had a beautiful sound. The, the type of sound he had was a little bit more open. He had a bigger tip opening with a softer reed, but that's how people played. So I heard Benny playing, and when he played jazz, I was influenced by it because I, I, it was very easy to get hooked into swing music. I mean, you, you'd have to really, really have some kind of a, an aversion to music or something not to respond to hearing just swing music. So it kind of caught on, and that kind of energized me when I was young. And when I went to uh, study classical music, my teacher was from the same school. So I did have kind of a foundation in that, that kind of a, you know, very resonant, vibrant, brilliant sound. Uh, but as years have gone on, I've gone to a closer tip facing with a firmer reed because I like a darker sound. And uh, there's a lot of player, well, like Eddie Daniels is kind of playing mm -hmm. with that sound, a very classical controlled sound. I wouldn't say I was influenced by that because I've always felt like I've heard darker sounds. Even my tenor playing, people would say, you have it. A darker sound. So the clarinet, just kind of the natural evolution of it over the years, I've gone to a darker sound, which is kind of more of my personality. But regarding the style of jazz, you know, if you listen to the CD, uh, I'm playing everything from New Orleans style jazz to Herbie Hancock tunes, and I have that ability. Uh, just, I guess, with my sound or my experience playing bebop tenor. But I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm trying to play, you know, old style swing music. I like, to, I like to play music that has a good melody. I like to play music that uh, makes me feel good, which is going to translate into the audience listening. Uh, I've gone to many concerts and heard people play, and you could, there was just a certain vibe, like they, they weren't in their setting or they weren't comfortable with themselves. So I, I will, in a concert, I will play um, kind of a, you know, Rosetta with stride piano and then go into swing or bebop. You said basically you, you decided, hey, I'm going to do a clarinet album, and you rounded up the band and went in the studio and did it. Was it different going in and recording from a from a technical standpoint? It, just the differences between uh -huh. a clarinet and a sax. Was there any anything from that and the studio side yeah. that was different? Well, I didn't want to handle many of the issues of the technical side. So when I was going to go in and do the recording, I kind of researched, and the studio I found had recorded clarinetists. Mm. 
And uh, speaking technically, from my non-technical uh, abilities here, uh, the clarinet does produce sound differently than the saxophone. It, it's got a different harmonic overtone series. Um, the saxophone, you know, with the way the bell is shaped and everything, the clarinet, the sound is coming out of the bell at the bottom, and, you know, and then coming out of the left hand. So you have to you have to mic it differently. And I would say generally, the microphone has to be placed a little bit further back. I think the if you get too close to the clarinet, you pick up too much of the readiness. You have to go back and where the overtones kind of just sort of form and come together. And then you have that, you have the sound. So the microphone placement, when I've done saxophone CD, CDs, has been, you know, just maybe a, a few feet away from the bell, aimed higher. The clarinet one was much further away. And in fact, they also, they put me in a large isolation room and they had a couple ambient mics in the room just to pick up the room sound of the clarinet too which is, you know, where where you can get the whole picture of the sound. Well, it's interesting, We the studio, the way it was designed, it was a very small studio, and uh, it was all, basically all isolation rooms. There was an isolation drum room. I was in the room next to them, all glass, so it was like we were right there, and the bass and piano were in kind of the main room, which was actually quite small. And uh, I picked the studio because it had a, a really warm piano sound. But the idea was never to overdub. There's no overdubs on the CD at all, uh, whatsoever. Yeah, we that did. was actually my next my next question. Oh. So he answered that nicely. Okay. Well, I'm always, you know, I, you think about isolation rooms, you start thinking, you know, you're laying down tracks like you're doing a pop album or something like that. You get the groove going. You know, this being a jazz album, uh, that's why I mentioned that. I wanted to, so ask your question. <laughs> did you do any overdubs? No, not at all, <laughs> no. It's very important, you know, when you listen to a jazz CD, if you're really a jazz aficionado, uh, aficionado or you really know the music, you can hear the conversation going on. You can hear the drummer reacting to a line that the, that the solos has played. You can hear the piano player reacting to that. Mm -hmm. And that's that intimacy of the music is is something that you is is probably what you get when you get the acquired taste of listening to jazz but if you overdub you don't have that and you know r real serious jazz players for the most part um, they kind of have an aversion to doing that because you you feel like you're uh, diluting the art form the creativity the idea of being spontaneous the idea of playing and part of what makes the CD exciting is the humanistic struggle you might have at times to get a note out or a squeak or a squawk or something that comes out. So we did no overdubs um, and we actually did the CD in a, in a very short time. I think we did it in four, four and a half hours with our Chinese food break which just about ruined the session. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we did it. We, we just kind of went in and said, hey, let's play, let's play. And that's what we did. And the comfort uh, and the, the feeling of the studio and the camaraderie and the love that, you know, the musicians we all have for each other really made it easy to do all that. 
One of your original compositions, Claxography, is dedicated to photojournalist William Claxton. Why? How did that come about? Well, uh, I get very sentimental when that's brought up because uh, William Claxton is a renowned photographer. And I would say that, uh, you know, in the jazz world, uh, in my opinion, he's absolutely, you know, the most prominent and absolutely has some of the most important photographs. And I, I met Clax, uh, as uh, we call him, or I'll, I'll call him Bill. Uh, I met Bill back in the early 90s when I had recorded my first CD. And um, somebody knew how to get in contact with him. And I had grown up uh, always admiring him because I, I had seen this picture he took of Donald Byrd sitting on uh, a subway, which was the A train in, in New York, playing his trumpet. And I just thought it was such a fascinating picture because he, um, he was able to capture the reaction of the people looking at this man playing the trumpet, you know, like in the dead of night, probably. Uh, and I had all these fantasies about why did that happen or whatever. So I had always known about Bill, and then somebody said they knew how to get in touch with him. I, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to call him up and say, how much would you charge to shoot pictures for my, my CD cover? So I called him up, and he, it was just like talking to a friend. It was just like talking to some guy you'd meet at a coffee shop. And we, we met for lunch at Musso Frank's in, in Hollywood. And once again, it was just like sitting down talking to some guy at a coffee shop. And he heard my music, and he said, you know what? Uh, I'll do the I'll do the pictures for free. You pay my costs, with the idea that when someday when you're rich and famous, you'll hire me at my normal rate, which of course I know what they are now. I'm not going to say what they are, but there's no way I could afford him. So we we developed a friendship, and and Bill over the years I've just got to know the way he uh, treats musicians and his view about artists and and life in general. He's just a very sweet, giving, humble man. One of the finest uh, people you'd ever meet. And so at one point after I had this experience with the CD, I thought, you know, I gotta write a tune for him. And so I sat down at the piano one day and I thought, well, you know what? Rhythm changes is kind of like the, the foundation or just kind of epitomizes the music that Bill loves so much. You know, you think about the, the, the 50s, you know, hard bop jazz. And, you know, a lot of people say, I, I thought I'm going to write a tune on, on, on rhythm changes and put a few little twists harmonically that I like. And I, and I wrote it. It was some of it's a little bit tongue in cheek. It's got some of that straight bebop, kind of little bird lines and stuff like that. So I wrote the song. I got his, his wife, Peggy Moffat, who actually is, is the famous model. And uh, to bring him down to Chadney's, which is no long, it's across the street from Burbank, uh, excuse me, from uh, NBC Studios in Burbank one night. And he was just sitting there with his wife, and we're playing our set. And I had them bring a bottle of champagne out. And then I announced, here's the world premiere of this tune. And we played it for him, and I presented him with a piece of me, a framed uh, piece of uh, sheet music of it. And then we recorded it. And um, it's, it actually became the, the title of a book, too. Um, there's a book called Claxography, The Art of Jazz Photography, which is actually the title of the tune. 
and it's a publication of his photographs, and it came out uh, back in the 90s. promoting your your new CD and uh, just what else do you have going on besides that do you have other concerts and things that you're doing you're still doing shows or well uh, I've actually uh, uh, I've enrolled in college again uh, I, I went to college for two years and did the typical I'm a working musician I don't need this and uh, I'm uh, back at Chapman University finishing up my clarinet performance degree which is kind of part of the, the whole thing that happened to me I figured you know I'll get an honest degree and and then I can uh, you know hopefully at some point maybe teach at a university or a college bring my knowledge of jazz and harmony and then my classical training to somewhere so I'm doing that uh, and it's keeping me very busy like for instance this Saturday night I'm playing a symphony concert and uh, with the, with the symphony so I'm doing that. I've got some jazz festivals coming up later in the year. But most of my focus right now is on, you know, getting A's and B's if I can. <laughs> and uh, my teaching studio, which keeps me busy, my private students. And doing gigs. Yeah. And, you know, jazz clubs. Yeah, you, we were talking over lunch about your your experience with the the clarinet that you're playing with the symphony. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the Yamaha A clarinet. Yeah, I was telling you uh, that when I went back, I, I, uh, I hadn't uh, touched the A clarinet in a long time because it's, it's a transposing instrument. We're doing a, a La Forza del Destino, Giuseppe Verdi, and it's all A clarinet. It's got this beautiful, rich, sonorous clarinet solos, and it's really exposed. So uh, I... Uh, needed to, you know, I took the A clarinet out and I right away thought, okay, A clarinet, I haven't touched this in a long time. I'm going to have to get out all my barrels. And then I put them on and I realized, wait a minute, something's not right. And then I put the, the, the Yamaha barrel on that comes with my Yamaha A clarinet. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, this is Yamaha. <laughs> I'm not playing some archaic, outdated uh, instrument. And so it was kind of fun. I was I was telling you that that uh, the instrument plays so well in tune, and it's so easy to produce an even scale with it, and I didn't I didn't have to worry about fiddling with the barrels. Yeah. And I know you just picked up an E flat as well. So we're going to see an, an E flat clarinet jazz album next. You know, I, <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine back east on the phone. He says, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, 
I'm practicing E-flat clarinet. I'm practicing these clarinet solos on the Ravel uh, piano concerto, and they're really hard. And so he said, well, let me hear what it sounds like. So I started playing the baby elephant walk, you know, the Henry Mancini mm -hmm. thing from the movie. He says, well, that's great. We'll play some jazz. So I started playing some bebop lines, and he said, wow, that sounds really good. And I said, does it really? It's so high, you know. <laughs> I don't know, you know, I've, it, it would be kind of funny to try it, yeah. see what it sounds like. It, I think the, the aversion I have to it is just the high pitch of the sound and just getting used to, to that and having it. Because when you're, when you're playing jazz, you're not supposed to be evaluating whether it sounds good. You have to, have, you have to kind of own the sound. So I'm, you know, doing a lot of E-flat e clarinet practice right now. And maybe when I feel like I'm owning the sound, uh, when I go in the studio again, which I plan to do, uh, it might be fun to try that. Great. Well, we, at the end of almost all of the, uh, the podcasts that we do, and especially the, the last few, we always made a point to get in kind of just a few, a few questions that, that may be a little heavy, but they, they somehow seem to uh, sum up a person in just a couple words. And it's tough. I, if you're stumped, I understand. And the question is, when you go to Starbucks, what drink do you order? Well, if I'm with my wife, I always get the, uh, the latte. Okay. Because I'll take three sips and she'll take the rest. If I'm by myself, I just get the tall drip coffee and I drink it straight. Yeah. No fillers. No fillers. <laughs> yeah. Coffee. I want straight coffee. coffee. I want straight coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we'll do the, the proverbial uh, desert island album pick. What you know? What's on your iPod? If you if, uh -huh. or you know, what do you listen to a lot? Or if you could only listen to one thing, what would it be? Well, you know, I haven't I haven't answered that. I haven't had to think about that in a long time. It would probably be the Mozart Clarinet Concerto, just because of the the you know it. I could see a jazz album, and there would be just hundreds and hundreds of albums I'd filter through. I could name people that influenced me, like Paul Desmond and Stan Getz. But um, there's just something about the Mozart Clarinet Concerto that I have a lot of sentimental attachment to. So I'm, it's kind of a personal thing, the Mozart Clarinet Concerto. And a lot of it has to do with um, not only that being like the quintessential thing you aspire to as a kid, but it's one of the most beautiful melodies ever written. You know, Mozart, uh, the greatest gift he had was his melodic sense. I mean, his music is timeless because of that. We think of Beethoven in terms of his orchestration. You know, ba 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 ba. I mean, okay, that's kind of a catchy tune, but is it really a Mozart piece? So, when I when I think of the Mozart clarinet concerto, it just kind of sums up uh, my whole life as a clarinetist. The beautiful melody, which I love. Uh, it's got a cadenza, which we play the traditional cadenza, but I've heard clarinetists do their own improvisation in the second movement. But I just love, I just love that piece. And then finally, when when my clarinet teacher George Walne, who's one of the greatest teachers of all time, when he passed away, that's the second movement of that was played. That's what he wanted played at his memorial service. And so I'm very sentimentally attached to that. Great. Uh, you know, again, it's just been great having you out and get a chance to catch up. Uh, been a, a few years since we've got a chance to really hang out and talk. Uh -huh. And uh, 
uh, great having you around, showing you around a bit. And uh, if if anyone's uh, curious to find out more about you, where would they be able? How could they do that? Well, there's not many Saint Marseilles on the internet. I have a uncle who was a famous hockey player, Frank Saint Marseille. But if you type in Saint Marseille, or or actually you can go to uh, my website, which would be dansaintmarseille.com. And uh, it would be D-A-N-S-T and then Marseille, like the city in France, MarseilleFrance.com. Or they could type in Swinging with the Saint, which is the new CD, and it'll come up. It'll, yeah, but if you go to my website, it's got stuff about me and little links to go hear the CDs and stuff like that. Great. Well, thanks again for coming out. And uh, always, a, always a pleasure hanging and talking to you. Thank you.